Just some good times rolling along on this Wednesday before uh, Turkey Day. Um, first name James is giving me the shake off. Apparently, I'm not supposed to talk about when we're recording these because people listen to these whenever they listen to them. So uh, sorry about that. First name James, thank you for coming in on this day when truly nobody is in the studio, nobody's in the office. Uh, but everyone seems to be out on the 405 freeway. I don't know if you saw that amazing um, uh, photograph of uh, the 405 freeway in Los Angeles, completely locked up, a beautiful uh, color, of, stripe of red along the northbound lanes and a stripe of white along the southbound lanes. Um, enjoy your commute home tonight, everybody. Uh, welcome to this, our second preview podcast. This is the Red Bulletin Podcast. I'm your host, Andreas Georges. Uh, we've got a really, really interesting guest coming in next week, uh, one of the top big wave surfers in the world. So I wanted to take this preview to talk about safety, the evolution of uh, safety in big wave surfing. And I wanted to do that by way of early 20th century Southern California uh, and starting uh, by talking about the first lifeguards. Uh, you know, to give you a perspective of how far we've come, but, you know, mostly just because I like the story. So, and it's my podcast. I'll begin by talking about the man who brought lifeguarding to mainland America. Uh, he is the son of an Irish father and a Hawaiian mother and one of the pioneer surfers. His name is George Freeth, and he impressed many with his surfing, including Jack London, uh, the earliest, early 20th century chronicler of life out in the outer frontiers, in the wild, wild west, when the wild west included Hawaii and Alaska. He wrote things or books you might have heard of, White Fang, Martin Eden, Man with an Appetite for Risks, and so you could understand what he liked in Freeth, who um, he called Brown Mercury. Freeth caught the eye of real estate developer and railway magnate. That's from the late Latin Magnus which means a great man, just like that. I think I mispronounced magnate, by the way. I think it's magnet. Anyway, magnet, tycoon, whatever your word for it. Uh, his name was Huntington. That's Huntington Beach or Surftown, USA, for those of you in the know. Um, he was on vacation in Hawaii, saw Freeth, and immediately snapped him up because he had built a railway out to the coast, and he thought Freeth would be a great person to uh, bring out to showcase uh, the the beauty of life on the beach and how fun life in the water uh, could be. And it's hard to imagine in this day of bazillion dollar Malibu homes, um, but people weren't really into living by the beach when LA was first settled. Uh, the railway line changed all that. There was no real beach culture to speak of. Though. So Freeth changed all that. He, he actually did more than just uh, kind of serve as a... As a um, I don't know, as a, like a, a performing peacock for, uh, for those from the interior who uh, had never seen people swim. Uh, according to accounts at the time, he walked on water, or as we now refer to it, he swam. Uh, and he taught swimmers, he taught uh, the growing community of lifeguards, uh, rescue techniques. He also developed the torpedo-shaped rescue buoys that are still in use today. And he even brought the sports of water polo and spearfishing over. Um, and that was way back then. So why does the U.S. water polo team continue to perform poorly at the Olympics? And why are countries like Hungary, where George Freeth didn't go, doing better? I don't know. Something to think on. Maybe something not to think about. Maybe we just move on. Maybe we just talk about how surfing didn't properly take off until the 50s um, with pioneers and general badasses like Mickey Dora. 
aka the cat and greg knoll aka double photos of a few brave souls including knoll uh taking on big waves in makaha in oahu i love pronouncing both of those <laughs> and i'm sure i did it in a way that's it's not entirely accurate but um those photos in california newspapers basically started a migration to hawaii um there's this this shangri-la of big waves it's actually where our guest next week hails from, uh, from Maui. So they were looking to go bigger and better in the 60s and, and warmer as well, by the way. Uh, cold weather surfers at this time were still ordering their wetsuits out of diving catalogs and lathering themselves up in Vaseline to guard against rashes before they donned their wetsuits. So you can imagine how nice it was to surf in 80-degree water, but I digress which I've done several times so far already. Uh, Noel is considered one of the sport's greatest um, big wave pioneers, and he's followed by names like Pat Curran and the legendary and beloved Eddie Icow, who tragically passed away in 1978 while paddling out into the ocean for help uh, when a sailing voyage uh, he was on went awry. Uh, he never came back. Uh, there's still a surf contest held um, off of the coast of uh, Oahu only when the waves are big enough, um, called the Eddie Invitational, uh, bearing the tagline, the famous quote said about Eddie Icow, Eddie would go. Uh, what makes these big wave surfers at that time, what made their achievements so unbelievable is uh, the gear that they were using was not uh, what we have nowadays. Uh, they just started using leashes. Um, they were at that point like surgical tubing uh, attached to wrists. Um, now they're, they're made of urethane, but basically those leashes connected the surfer and the board and, uh, could be very helpful in orientating yourself under, underwater. You can imagine, uh, the maelstrom and the chaos underwater, uh, when a big wave lands on you and you don't quite know which way is up and which way is down. Being buoyed to a board, to your board via leash, uh, was a helpful way of, uh, understanding what was up. This this kind of pushed the edges a bit further, but it was really when Laird Hamilton and friends began using jet skis to tow each other into big waves in the mid-1990s that the stakes really rose up. Tow and surfing allowed uh, surfers to match the speed of bigger and bigger waves, catching them in a way they couldn't under their own power. They wore life jackets, but it was often the force of the wave that would rip them off. Uh, and, you know, when the pendulum swung back to, let's say, a more pure uh, pure form of surfing. There's a whole podcast in the battle between toe-in surfers on big waves and paddle-in surfers on big waves. In any case, you know, let's say 2008, 9, 2010, people were getting back into paddling into big waves because they thought it was pure. So when when that came back into fashion, uh, toe-in surfers obviously were earning the, earning the full scorn and derision of those who paddled in. Um, life jackets, wearing life jackets, were uh, was was really really difficult because uh, lying down on a board while wearing a life jacket, trying to pop up in a big wave, uh, pretty tough. Um, try it sometime. Actually you probably won't ever surf in a big wave. So maybe don't try it. But you can imagine, right? It's bulky. So, so innovation had to come, right? There had to be some sort of, there had to be some sort of advancement. The, 
sense, though, of what was pure and real in surfing uh, kind of reared its head again when this advancement came. And this was after Shane Dorian, a very, very well-respected big wave surfer, almost died at this fearsome uh, break right off the coast of Half Moon Bay, California, called called Mavericks. Um, he had a wipeout that was that was near fatal. And so him and his sponsor, Billabong, got together and developed what was called the V1 wetsuit, uh, which is not yet available to the wider public. But it basically uses uh, CO2 canisters to uh, inflate the vest at the pull of a ripcord. Patagonia uh, followed suit. They developed uh, an inflatable vest as well. Um, and in 2014 or 15, I believe, Quicksilver followed suit, partnering with French company Aqualung uh, to do uh, a, a similar, uh, similar kind of product that would, that would enable surfers both to inflate and deflate their vests so they could uh, dive back underwater when they needed to. So inflating to get you to the top, deflating when you had to duck under a massive wave again. Jet skis are still in use, very much so, in fact. Uh, in addition to towing and surfers, which still happens, uh, they also serve as vital rescue vehicles, far more, actually, as vital rescue vehicles. Um, they zip around the whitewash, uh, often a great peril to the drivers uh, to pluck surfers out of the water. Big wave names like Dorian, Greg Long, Maya Gabera have been rescued from near drowning by jet skis, uh, driven often by their fellow uh, big wave surfing colleagues who, who just have to read um, read the set as it's coming in, have to read the waves, have to understand when they can go and when they can go out. So it, it requires its own science, it requires its own art, and it requires its own courage and, and uh, appetite for risk. But beyond the gear, the big wave community has gotten better prepared physically and mentally as well. Um, after all, you know, snowboarders and skiers are well-schooled in avalanche safety and training before they go out to the backcountry. Um, so why shouldn't surfers be equally prepared? And this is where next week's guest comes in. Uh, Ian Walsh has made his name on big waves, but it's the commitment that he and his brothers, he's, he's, the, he's the oldest of four, the Walsh brothers of Maui, have made uh, the commitment they've made in keeping fellow surfers safe off of the coast of Hawaii that have been his perhaps his biggest service to the sport to date. We'll talk to Walsh next week about the rush of riding big waves and the brutal wipeout and hold down he experienced in Maui that forever changed the way he approached riding giants. He'll tell us what he learned from Navy SEALs and why a good day in big wave surfing is when everyone comes home alive. So stay tuned. Also, special shout out this week to associate producer JK, it's Jess, who helped compile the research for this preview pod. Jess is leaving us. I'll say she's on, she's on hiatus from us. Let's put it that way before first name James breaks out and, and really starts to lose it. He's been quite emotional these last few weeks. Um, she's on hiatus because she's making her way back to the East Coast. So I wanted to say, JK, thank you for all you've done. Thank you for your service thus far. Uh, good luck. Uh, we hear New York is a pretty neat town. See you next time. Right,